Take refuge in the Buddha, take refuge in the Dharma, take refuge in the Sangha. Today I'm going to talk about silence in speech, stillness, activity, sacred and ordinary, and I want to open with a very famous passage from a very deep Mahayana Sutra called the Vimalakirti Sutra. And Vimalakirti was a lay person who was more enlightened than all of the Buddha's monks, and they were scared of this person because he was such a Dharma badass. This is just an, an excerpt from this. So we've been talking about these polarities, and one of the things that this sutra is talking about is that whenever we're viewing reality in a polarized way, we're not free. And all of these pairs that I have been talking about, I'm just making a bunch of noise because they're not actually separate. And in a sense, our, we enter the polarities in order to transcend them or to move freely with them. So I think the context for this, this chapter is a ton of bodhisattvas, like 80 bodhisattvas are in Vimalakirti's tiny hut. That's the first really cool thing. And he's asking them, well, can you drop some science on non-duality? See what you're made of. And so I'm skipping down, but I'll start with Padma Vyuha. The, bod the Bodhisattva Padma Vyuha declared, dualism is produced from obsession with self. The true understanding of self does not result in dualism. Who thus abides in non-duality is without, is without ideation. And that absence of ideation is the entrance into non-duality. The Bodhisattva Sri Garba declared, Duality is constituted by perceptual manifestation. Perception is that function of the mind that basically puts a wedge between the object of sense, that which senses, and that which is sensed. It's a very basic gesture of separation that habitual mind does that we're learning to let go of. We're learning to notice that mind does that. We're learning to let go of it. So Sri Garba says, duality is constituted by perceptual manifestation. Non-duality is objectlessness. Therefore, non-grasping and non-rejection is the entrance into non-duality. The Bodhisattva Khandrotara declared, darkness and light are dualistic but the absence of both darkness and light is non-duality. In a Buddhist teaching, and especially in Zen, darkness doesn't mean negative emotions or the devil or like when you're in a bad mood. And light doesn't mean God and everything holy. Darkness and light are dualistic, but the absence of both darkness and light is non-duality. Why? At the time of absorption and cessation, let's call it deep, deep samadhi, at the time of absorption and cessation, there is neither darkness nor light, and likewise with the nature of all things. The entrance into this equanimity is the entrance into non-duality. 
And you can imagine Vimalakirti right now and that kind of old b-boy thing, like, <laughs> think 80s hip-hop. The Bodhisattva Ratna Mudra Hasta declared, it is dualistic to detest the world and to rejoice in liberation. And neither detesting the world nor rejoicing in liberation is non-duality. So it's dualistic to be like, oh, there's this holy practice I do in my robes on the mountain and everyone that's living in Portland is a bunch of idiots who don't get what life's about. That's basically what he's trying to cut through. It's dualistic to detest the world and to rejoice in liberation. And neither detesting the world nor rejoicing, nor rejoicing in liberation is non-duality. Why? Liberation can be found where there is bondage. But where there is ultimately no bondage, where is there need for liberation? The practitioner who is neither bound nor liberated does not experience any like or any dislike and thus enters non-duality. The Bodhisattva Manikuttaraja declared, it is dualistic to speak of good paths and bad paths. Ooh, don't people love to do that? When I hear a teacher criticize other teachers, I turn the other way. That's my practice. It is dualistic to speak of good paths and bad paths. One who is on the path is not concerned with good or bad paths. Living in such unconcern, she entertains no concept of path or unpath. Understanding the nature of concepts, her mind does not engage in duality. Such is the entrance into non-duality. The Bodhisattva Satyarata declared, it is dualistic to speak of true and false. When one sees truly, one doesn't even see truth. So one could not see the false. Why? One does not see with the physical eye. One sees with the eye of wisdom. And with the eye of wisdom, one sees only insofar as there is neither sight nor non-sight. There where there is neither seeing nor not seeing is the entrance into non-duality. When the bodhisattvas had given their explanations, they all addressed the crown prince Manjushri. Manjushri is the image that we bow to as we enter. That's the bodhisattva of wisdom. And traditionally, in a Zen meditation hall, there is no Buddha image, because that's you being the Buddha. And we walk in and we bow to Manjushri. So Manjushri is here. And he's a little bit worried about Vimalakirti. It's going to get shored up. So Vimalakirti said, oh no, all the bodhisattvas asked Manjushri, like he was, he's the leader of them. Manjushri, what would you say? What is the bodhisattva's entrance into non-duality? And Manjushri replied, good people, you have all spoken well. Nevertheless, all your explanations are themselves dualistic. No one teaching, expressing nothing, saying nothing, explaining nothing, announcing nothing, indicating nothing, designating nothing. That is the entrance into non-duality. Then the prince Manjushri said to the Lachavi Vimalakirti, Lachavi is his clan name, We have all given our own teachings, noble sir. Now may you elucidate the teaching of the entrance into the principle of non-duality. And therefore Vimalakirti kept his silence saying nothing at all. We have to know what this means. 
and why he kept his silence. It's the same exact reason that for this whole week, hopefully, you have kept your silence. The Crown Prince Manjushri applauded Vimalakirti, saying, Excellent, excellent, noble sir. This is indeed the entrance into the non-duality of the bodhisattvas. Here there is no use for syllables, sounds, and ideas. When these teachings had been declared, the 5,000 bodhisattvas, there were a lot of them in that hut, entered the door of the Dharma of non-duality and attained tolerance of the birthlessness of things. That's a stage of realization in, uh, in the Mahayana expression. Tolerance that nothing ever actually happens. So when we talk about silence and stillness, we're talking about a pregnant silence, a pregnant stillness. If we could have been there, or if we arrive in that scene with Vimalakirti, we would feel the vibrancy of that not saying. Potent, like a loaded rifle. So in practice, which uses words which are always wrong, which we have very little other options, to mistake the invitation to silence or stillness as a deadening imposition on yourself is, is deadening. It's not what we're being invited into. We're invited into a pregnant silence, a pregnant stillness. A related mistake is dialing our energy down. We see the Buddha sitting there all peacefully, and we might mistake that as somebody who is not vital, who is not pregnant with energy. It's not dialing our energy down. In fact, as you've found, I can hear some of you walking around, you're full of energy from all this sitting. When you really sit, you become a vessel for joriki. There's not as many thoughts going on, so the universe can flow in on that level. So we're not hiding in silence, we're not clinging to silence. If we hide in it or we cling to it, it's not actually silence. It's become an idea of silence. Because silence is not a thing. There's images like a stone woman pregnant in the night. That's Zazen. A barren woman that continually gives birth. That's this moment. A wood man that sings. And our practice is to become the wood man that sings, to awaken to that singing. That singing will just happen. There's all kinds of singing. On a relative level, silence is spiritually beneficial. It 
Is it ultimately necessary to go deep into practice? This would be a real conundrum if it weren't the case that silence were ultimately everywhere. When I was a teenager and I first started meditating, I had a very noisy house, so I, and I couldn't find any earplugs, and I was really poor at that time. So I took pieces of toilet paper and stuffed them in my ears in order to meditate, because I lived in a house where drugs were being sold. So there's always someone new coming to the door and dogs barking. And, and I did that, and then I'm a klutzy person, and still klutzy, and I pushed the, um, the paper into my ear, and I had to go to the doctor so they could use a, like a turkey baster to get it out. <laughs> So a place like Great Vow, as best as it can be, is an offering to the world where actual silence, not where relative silence and not ultimate, ultimate silence is here, where relative silence is available more widely. Because silence is sacred food. Silence is elixir. Silence is a divine vodka. It's not dead. It's not merely the absence of sound. It's a fountain of youth hiding in plain sight. There's a lot of concern about, historically in the tradition, about people becoming attached to samadhi or stillness. And I think in our current day and age, anybody who gets attached to samadhi or stillness, I would just bow to them. <laughs> May we get attached to samadhi and stillness. It will take care of itself because the stone woman will give birth. And actually your greed for it, my greed for it becomes generosity. Is there anything else like that in the world? Your greed for stillness will become generosity. The need for it becomes the need to give it away. But you can't actually give it away. If you hang out with a disturbed person, yourself, and you go out and you look, you'll know that when you're disturbed, everything is irritating. Everything is disturbed. But when you're silence, everything is silence. Shakojo said, all things are quiescent. Meaning they're transcendent of our category. Our opinions are like snowflakes on a furnace. A furnace of silence. Rather than thinking of making ourselves silent, think of it as attuning to silence. And we can do that, do that right now. Tune to the silence.
It's a little bit like dialing a radio. When you hit the frequency, it becomes clear. Before you really hit it, it's a little bit fuzzy. There's still static. Silence is definitely broadcasting. And from there, experience your body as that silence. Experience the sounds as that silence. Experience your thoughts as that silence. Not stopping them. What bodhisattva practice is, is told to us, but actually when we live our day-to-day -day lives, it's an open question. It's something to be lived into. One aspect of that can be being a vessel of this silence. And whether that's carrying the gift of non-reactivity, of isness, into situations. When my grandmother was dying, and I was still in training here, and I went to visit, as you might have encountered with sick people, if agitated people that they love even are around, often they would rather not be around the agitated people. I think it's similar to why cats and dogs want to go die underneath buildings away from humans, because we're agitated and agitating, generally. But you might encounter a sick person who really doesn't want to be susceptible to our disturbance. It makes them uncomfortable. So being a vessel of quiet and carrying that forth as a gift, at least not adding noise to noise, insult to injury, argument to argument. People love to argue. Oh my God, I'm Jewish. Jewish people love to argue. It's like, and there's a spirit with it. It's playful and it's fun. But there's a current level of argument amplified by social media that's just, it's just noise on noise. It's like, a heap, what's it called? A dog pile of noise. There's some noise and other noise jumps on top of the noise and just gets noisier and it gets louder so other people jump on it. True silence is no fixed position. It's not going into the courtroom. This is also a deep bodhisattva practice to be with people who always want you to agree with them and not go into the courtroom. How do you do that? You're at ease in not having a position. 
Now, if you make that into a position, you do have one. And so if we have to go back into the courtroom, our arguments can be arising from and dissolving back into silence. It's very different, and you'll meet lots of opinionated Dharma teachers if you stick around this scene for long enough. But it's very different as someone is opinionated and it's rising out of silence than opinions that are just rising out of opinions. That's noise. Someone without any opinions ever is kind of like a ghost. Someone whose opinions rise out of silence and they let them fall back into silence, that's that's a nice person to have a conversation with. It's like wrinkles in a piece of silk formed and then smoothed out. And that's how we work with our minds. Again, silence is not some stasis. It's letting the silk wrinkle and then letting it smooth out. It's a poem called, The Birds of the Air Belong to No One. Between silence and dawn, I built a bedroom. Between silence and dawn, I built a bedroom whose window looks out upon all existence, seeing without being. Silence becomes knowing. And everything seen in this way is loved is one's own. Appearance is a conference of birds flown down from above. Bright tumbling, starling, murmuration of knowing into loving, swooping about your head. In Vajrayana, instead of saying form is emptiness, they say appearance is emptiness. Because all we ever have is moments of experience. We just have things that appeared. Just like if you look up, the ceiling appears. If you look at your hand, it appears. Appearance. They mean everything when we don't have this fixed notion, this basic uh, Aristotelian notion, that there's this solid lump of reality out there. Appearance is a conference of birds. Flown down from above, bright tumbling, starling, murmuration of knowing into loving, swooping about your head. A sudden secret language, the script called being. Stellar remnant called languaging, spilling over, bubbling up, plunging down until concept experiences word death. If there's wisdom and beauty, it comes from forsaking small talk, disowning the banter of ghosts. That's a good, that's a good one to carry around. Disown the banter of ghosts. Forswaying, excuse me, forswearing decays chit-chat. You and I both know gossip is always of the dead. Tired words, exhausted, worn-out, angry words, spreading fatigue like plague bites of infected fleas consume the soul. 
nullify the heart. Let your mouth, fingertips, eyes be the full moon's luminous speech. Speak only of what gives birth. I too am drunk on the nameless, and I know the birds of the air belong to no one. There's a concept in Jewish mysticism understood on different levels of tikkun. And tikkun means to repair the world. The world is fractured. Pretty easy to see nowadays. Always been the case. The world is fractured and God can't actually fix that. It's up to us. The divine needs us to repair to bring back together, to resume the unity of the world. And so human beings' job is tikkun, it's sacred responsibility, it's completing the universe. We have to do it. For each of us, we're actually the center of experience. You're the only place experience happens. Other people are your experience, but as far as you're concerned, Here you are. So each of us is tikkun for the world. And so check out what happens when you begin to carry a mind that is a quiet sky. And then things can be themselves. For whatever beauty there is in the world, you and I are the medium of that. Right? This body-mind is the medium, not only of beauty, of ugliness too, of course. We're the medium. A pretty crummy, a pretty murky picture gets painted on a canvas that's full of noise. We're not just doing this because we don't like our thoughts and we want to cope better and whatever the kind of worldly motivation for practice is. The universe needs it. There almost isn't a universe until we do this. There's just tubes looking at the corner of the sky. This is wild. From the, perspective, from the perspective of training, not of what the adepts say realization is, from the perspective of training, laboring in non-ultimate dharmas is of ultimate value. So say what you will, and people do, about samadhi and quiet mind, but those who know its value firsthand know its value, and those who don't, don't. And it's a labor of love. You're not doing it simply for a psychological reason. Though there are tremendous benefits. If you learn to quiet your mind, I don't know, 60% of your distress goes away, 70%? Practice is, the whole of practice is not 
a quiet mind, but it goes a long way. Just think about if these different thoughts that are so torturous and so fear-provoking just weren't there that often. This is why people drink themselves into a stupor. This is why people love to sleep. This is why there's marijuana dispensaries on three on every block in Portland. Of course, it doesn't fully work. It's a labor of love, and because silence is not some dead thing, we're dealing with energy. We're dealing with an energy that begins to permeate our bodies. And silence is not manufactured. It's an absent presence always. It's an absence presence always. An absence present always. It's not in here, I'm going to make it because out there is noisy. It's just one, it's just one silence. more like silence is a lamp that just shines wherever you are and if there's room enough it will fill you so we soak through with with silence bit by bit day by day, and because of that, and because it's not something we're trying to carry around in a precious container, and I can talk about this because I tried to do that, go hide after session so I can protect my silent container, I would go under the covers so nobody would want to socialize with me. (laughs) We're not carrying around a precious container of silence. We live in the precious container of silence. We just need to break open. Because it is not, silence does not need to be held as precious in the sense of protecting it. When it's time to speak and act, we do so without any thought of silence. Silence belongs to those who love it. It's there. got our back. It's not the opposite of something. And silence is not not saying. As Vimalakirti demonstrates with that, that pregnant silence. Pregnant silence is not the same as frozen silence. The silence of, of hiding what I'm actually feeling the silence of muffling my emotions. 
So silence is not the opposite of something. We could say everything is speech. Everything is speech. Everything is expression or embodiment. And there are many kinds of speech and many kind of expression. Where speech comes from is a matter of our, our practice depth, our experience. Right? Our opinions can rise out of a well of depth or they can arise off just the previous opinion. There's karma's speech. In this sense, I mean habituation. Many of us, probably all of us, we have routines in our, in our day and some of it we feel pretty good about. We enjoy the activities. They might be necessary for our survival. And some of the things we do, we actually don't know why we do them and don't see the benefit, but we do them anyway. And spiritually, this is not satisfying. That which is free in us kind of goes into the b-boy thing. Like, why are you being an automaton? Because our nature is freedom, to be an automaton is deeply, but subtly, irritating. It doesn't feel good. That's karma's speech. We have to restrain karma's speech or it just keeps on speaking. Keeps on speaking until we can't anymore. It can be helpful to think of the mind as a community, as the various karmas as a community. There's part of me that rather than sit with my um, irritation after work and just relax, goes right for the phone. Okay, now I, now I have some space already. I know that there's part of me that wants to do that. That's not me. It's just part of me. There's part of me that actually doesn't know what else to do besides let karma speak. What's the alternative? Well, that's not the whole of us either. There's rootless speech. Linji said something about the person of the way is fundamentally rootless. Sometimes you're present and you spontaneously respond and something meets the moment. You just, you just respond. Afterwards, your critic, your rational mind might say, I'm not sure if that was the right thing that I did. Which it can always do. Or the pleaser, another member of the karmic community says, ooh, maybe I was a little too direct. Maybe they don't like me. I'm going to write an email and make sure everything's okay. Hey, sweetie, sorry I told you to close the door. I really... The wrong thing is not evidenced by someone disapproving. This is how we put on little Buddhist nicey faces and get fake. There will always be someone disapproving. 
always, if not in you and someone else, someone's disapproving of something that you're doing. You know when you're in the, the critic and like, you're just like, oh, they don't even walk right in the zendo. You don't even breathe right. You don't even know how to fucking breathe. It's so petty. It's so petty. If we're more compassionate, we'll say that part of us is so distressed. It's so, um, it's so brittle. It's so dried up. All of the teachings, especially in Zen, because it really values nothing extraneous. It's not a voluptuous tradition. It's a, it's a spare tradition. All of the teachings, they're there for a reason. And so one of the teachings is Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya. And one of the things that means is if we're rested in silence, if the karmic community doesn't grab us and say, do the right thing, do it like you've always done it, then things will just come forth. And that's the Nirmanakaya, that's the manifesting of silence for the sake of love. But we're so afraid. We're so afraid someone will think I'll do the wrong thing. Or we're so afraid that that part of us that is a jerk is gonna come out if we don't be the good girl. And so in order to be able to function in this way where Dharmakaya can do Nirmanakaya, doing some work about the inner jerk really helps. So non-anxiety rooted in silence, trusting in speech that rises from that root. If you've been judging somebody, or if you feel you're above somebody or below somebody, you can't actually trust what comes spontaneously out of your mouth. It's just karma, it's not spontaneity. But we all have that where we're present, life comes towards us and we respond and it's actually just perfect. But then right after we go, oh, I don't know, was that, was that good? A little out of character. Wait, aren't I supposed to be worried? Everyone else is worried around me. And that's the thing about consensus reality. Everyone else around you is anxious and worried and criticizing and gossiping. So if you're not, you're kind of like, is this okay? <laughs> because of this problem, there are a lot of spiritual traditions that say, okay, that all might be true, but just be nice. Because a jerk lives in you. <laughs> Actually, just be kind. Just think about what you're going to say before. Actually, probably better not to say anything. <laughs> There's a lot of Buddhism that's basically saying, probably better for you not to say anything, because what comes out is often from that jerk. But if you're going to say something, make sure it's loving. It's not a bad practice. Because the silent root doesn't, is not connected to our aggression or our competition. Rootlessness is not, that's what it means. It's not rooted in that. But our karmic body is. 
So the practice of loving speech is like WD-40 for the window of silence. Because even if it is a practice and action, a karma of being loving, the wake of loving speech is soothing. Feels good when we do it, feels good when we receive it. And so loving speech actually delivers us into rootless speech. In our lives, our bodies speak continually. I don't know that every little sensation we have is some thing of deep import. Many practitioners believe that every sensation that arises in their body is something of deep import. It's really scary to have a body because it's dark to you. And especially if there's something weird going on, it reminds us that we're still afraid of death. And so our whatever is tingling a little bit, and we think of going to the doctor, we catastrophize. But put that aside, the body's speech, the Dharma is done with the body as much as with the heart-mind. It's part of why we have the forms that we do, why you should sit up during a Dharma talk. Your body is speaking. Body speaks heart, and the heart is spoken to by the body. So how you carry your body is your heart. Heart, body, and mind are a continuum. They're one piece of fabric. So our body is speaking, and we speak with our body. What do we want to speak? The Dharma uses our bodies to speak aging and sickness, open or closed. In Dogen, one articulation of the path He said, there's a circle of the way. There's a, what is it? It is is a triad that is one, because it's a circle, but they also feed into each other. Practice, realization, and expression. Yes, to sit zazen wholeheartedly, even for a moment, expresses kind of wisdom. It's a wise person in us that decides to sit zazen. We don't break the precepts when we sit zazen. We're not making karma when we sit zazen. And it can be deeper depending on our practice, what that moment of zazen is. Could be tikkun. 
But we can also think of these and should it neglect them sequentially. We practice, we have some realization, and then expression. And if we neglect expression, the circle is broken. We have to bring this to life. And we can't bring it to life like somebody else. That's to deviate from realization. Realization is you're one with yourself. You can never leap out of yourself. So expression. We bring forth the Dharma in a way that is entirely ours. It's a little bit like jazz. You study the standards and then you have to riff on them. Or like hip-hop. Or like painting. You copy paintings and you really grok the masters and then eventually you have a, a deeply practiced foundation that you can say something, you can paint something of genuine benefit. But our life is always saying something. And I think Dogen is also saying practice, realization, and expression are inescapable. You can't not do it. You're always practicing something. That sucks. I don't like it, but it's true. You're always practicing something. It's like, what's the mind practicing right now? The more you do it, the better you get at it. The more likely you are to do it. You're always realizing the fruit of that practice. And you're always expressing something. So our life is always saying something. And life is always listening and responding to what we're saying. It's a conversation with no speakers or no listeners because it's so intimate. The teachings on, on karma strike me as a way through rational language to try to articulate how the universe works. The intimate conversation that is universe. So a beautiful practice is to ask, what do I want to say? Viktor Frankl, who studied people who flourished or at least had deep, tender equanimity in the concentration camps, said that the last of man's freedom that cannot be taken away is the ability to choose one's response to circumstance. And because of horrors like that and people who were not horrible in that, we know that it's true. We have evidence of that being the case. What do we want to say? You could wake up each day and say, what do I want my life to say today? Maybe we wake up with anxiety because that question is really there and we're not, we're not relating to it as much as it's demanding. And so we're anxious about the day that so much could be done and so much could happen. And not talking about like doing more things or starting new projects or being heroically busy. But how we're seeing and how we're doing and meeting that day. What do I want my life to say today?
it's just the other side of the koan where the master, forget his name. Let's just say his name was Bob. Master says, Bob? And he answers himself and says, yes. And he says, Bob, do not be deceived by others. And Bob says, no, no, I won't. What do I want my life to say today? It's terribly beautiful, the responsibility of a human life. Because I believe we deeply into it, it can all be made into gold. It is all gold, but I mostly see dog shit. And that's on me. Another poem. Appearances, so the world, but he's starting off again with this very helpful way of talking about it. Appearances. Appearances are not a place to find love, for you are love. The eye cannot see itself seeing, seeing's evidence is in the sight. Love's evidence is found in the act of loving, not the search to be loved. Appearances are a place to let loose the songbird of gratitude. Sometimes we feel alone, unloved, undernourished. Sometimes we become the willing slave of resentment, that errand boy of self-pity. Sometimes we imagine we are unheard, unseen, unloved. But there is a love whose ears are made from the cells of each living body. A love whose million, million eyes are hidden in pine needle brushed by wind. The scurrying feet of little brown mice, bramble thicket thorns, the glint of light on a metal sink. That love is all ear, all eye, seeing and knowing, even the innermost intimate part of you. And love does respond, but we do not hear. Love whispers, growls, exclaims, speaks in a thousand languages of genuine and gentle innuendo. What is it that blocks out our understanding? It is that subtle urge to deny that backward sort of arrogance, which would rather be first in hell than second in heaven. With love, we are happy, but we are never first. With love, we become a son of joy, but we come to this through service. Hell is made from the topsy-turvy economy of miserlinesses, greed for more. Heaven is made from an economy of infinitude where what is given multiplies 100-fold. Sometimes we find ourselves feeling unwanted, unloved, undernourished, and hell whispers, take another me day. But only pain comes from loving corpses. Corpses, yes. Demand, grasping the ceaseless want of the word more. 
These make corpse meat from appearances. The begging bowl of desire is never filled, for it empties itself out even as gold is poured in. In that moment, poverty, give, share yourself, pour out riches if you believe yourself empty. You will discover yourself rich. Emptiness pours out everything and everything. Emptiness is the always overflowing treasure chest of love. We can submit to the instructions of love. Submission is the secret of knowledge. Knowledge says love's only instruction is love. Ask for the key to the kingdom and it is never withheld. The words to that request are formed from the action of loving, not the demand to be loved. No one has ever asked who did not discover their heart to be a bottomless well of this love. Some of the things I want to talk about are things I would normally do in the morning closing talk, but sometimes I'm falling over from sleep in that period. And if I'm not, I look out and I notice that half the zendo is falling over from sleep. So I feel like, well, what is the point of giving a talk at five in the morning about practicing when you leave session? It's good to touch into the sacredness of silence, of formal practice, embodying by the place we set up to do it, by the attitude we bring to it, by the devotion and constancy, embodying, coaxing in, inviting the sacred. One of my teachers says, anybody who says they can't find an hour a day to practice, needs to rework their lives. We can think of our formal practice like a daily dipping in, a daily dipping into that well of silence. And then there's an afterglow through the day. And the deep, deeper that, that dipping, the stronger that afterglow. The Sufis would talk about spiritual life as the divine flirting and kissing you and receding, being a kind of playful romance. The light, the juice of practice kisses us and then it hides. Not because we're doing it wrong, it's part of the rhythm. There may be some beings for whom there's nothing but that. And we may have the deep fortune to meet somebody like that someday. But on the path, this flaw is a deep rhythm and not, not a problem. And if we say no to the practice, if we withdraw our devotion when it's not kissing us the way we want it to, well, what is that? 
There's a lot said about everyday life practice. Everyday life practice is being mindful. I don't know. I think it's more valuable to think of everyday practice as the attitude that we bring. If we engage what we're doing with the energy that this matters, then it matters. If our attitude is that this actually doesn't matter, the elements of my life, then attention barely alights. We barely meet what's in front of us. You know, it's like when you're at a party and like the sexy person is over there and the person you didn't really want to talk to comes up and engages you and you're like, oh, I can't wait till this is over. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like, should I just let them know I'm not interested? Like, I'm not really interested in you, dude. Like, that's what we do with everything in our lives. The sexy is in the corner, and we decide that this is not it. And so we actually don't see. That person could be beautiful. That mug, that conversation, that scooping the litter box could be beautiful. Where else do we expect to find the light? And stretching that outlook wider and wider is at least, is at least my practice. Can I find it here at the convalescent home? Can I find it in traffic? Can I find it on the toilet? I find it when the water is cold and not warm. Oh, poor me. Oh, poor me. Bourgeois duka. <laughs> the shower's not really hot. Now, stretching that outlook of meeting whatever comes toward us with, with the whole of ourselves, with really fully being there with responsibility to what came toward us is stretching the heart wider and wider. We're making the altar bigger and bigger. People love to like say everything is practice so that they can like do whatever, go snort cocaine or whatever their version of like the thing that like be good to rationalize. Everything is practice. But then when it comes to the cat shit, where's that state of mind? We have to start with the litter box. We have to start with the traffic jam, then maybe edgier things are even worth considering trying to engage as practice. Before that, it's just a bunch of talk. Thankfully, the sacred is already in what we love. In what we love, already somehow we're able to fully be there for that, and it can fully be there. And so this is important too. Lama Lekshe, when I was first becoming a monk, saw how kind of rigid I was. And she very skillfully said, you know, Jogan, every monk needs a hobby. <laughs> and she was right while we're stretching the capacity to, for our energy to make things beautiful, 
Engage with what is already beautiful. See what that does to you. Notice the state of mind that's coaxed forth, whether it's your lover, your bicycle, your cup of coffee, whatever it is. Tori Zenji's, Tori Zenji's Bodhisattva Bao has been saying, love is actually trying to approach us all the time, especially through what we don't love. Especially through what we don't love, it just keeps coming. It just keeps showing up. That person, that sensation in my back, that customer, that state of mind, can't shake this mood. I fucking hate it. I think of caring for practice, even in a place like this. People who don't live here have the fantasy that they've lived here, their practice would go from C minus to A plus. It's not necessarily the case. You could get more complacent. You're just kind of going through the rhythm and you're saying all this zenny stuff and you're sitting on these cushions and you think, wow, something good must be happening. It's like, I'm just hanging around spiritual people kind of os- osmosis. We make our aspiration sacred by protecting it. It's like a little votive candle. For some people, it's like a fire that just doesn't go out. They're on fire with the Dharma. They're just, they're just, they just are, are clear what matters. It's blazing. It's like a kind of fire that when it's that hot, it's almost impossible to put out. But for most of us, it's like a little flame. It's like a little votive candle, and we have to protect it from the wind. And there's something to be said for humility about that. Usually there's just these rationalizations. For me, it's like, oh, everything's practice. I'll brag to my girlfriend. I'm always meditating. She's like, the last time you meditated, because I'm grumpy. I am meditation. (laughs) You should ask her. So it's like a little votive candle to protect. To protect, it's precious. It really is precious. That's why places like this exist, because it gets blown out by our rationalizations, sometimes actually by life circumstances. Though if you read the stories of great practitioners, most of them had just horrible things come down. They had just terrible circumstances. And that took them deeper into the Dharma, not, oh, I have too much going on, my this, I can't do it, my that, no. They went deeper, not away. Practice secretly like a fool, like an idiot. This means when you're with your mother-in-law, you hold the candle in here. You don't hold it out here. There's a time for forgetting the sacred. You're just living life. 
A contemporary Japanese Zen Roshi would tell the, Zen, the uh, lay people after session, forget about Zen when you go home, just wholeheartedly live your life. Live your life with full engagement. Again, silence belongs to those who love it. It's on our side if we're engaged in that love affair. So I think what we're doing is deeply important. I think you will find over time, if you already haven't, I'm definitely preaching to the choir, that the more you, not as far as quantity, don't think, oh, it would be good if I did more. The more you seat your life in Dharma, the more it gives you, the more its value is evident. Let um, Rumi have the last word. Every tree, every tree, every growing thing as it grows, says this truth, you harvest what you sow. You harvest what you sow. With life as short as a half-taken breath, do not plant anything but love. Hmm. Rumi, a lot of it, if you read about him as a being, these poems were kind of like admonitions to himself that he'd write down and tack on his mirror. With life as short as a half-taken breath, do not plant anything but love. The value of a human being can be measured by what he or she most deeply wants. And that can be easily misunderstood by the externalizing mind. Oh, yeah. Those other people, they just want sex. It's not what he's saying. The value of a human being can be measured by what he or she most deeply wants. What is it we all deeply want? We all deeply want that. Be free of possessing things. Sit at an empty table. Be pleased with water, the taste of being home. People travel the world looking for the friend, but that one is always at home. Jesus moves quickly to Mary. A donkey stops to smell the urine of another donkey. There are simple reasons for what happens. You will not stay clear if you sit for long with the one who pours the wine. You can make a whole book of Sufi koans. You will not stay clear if you sit for long with the one who pours the wine. Someone with a cup of honey in his hand rarely has a sour face. If someone says a eulogy, there must be a funeral nearby. A rose opens because she is the fragrance she loves. A rose opens because she is the fragrance she loves. 
We speak poems and lovers down the centuries will keep saying them. Love that. Here it is. How wild. This person who lived in Afghanistan almost a thousand years ago. Heart to heart with us. We speak poems and lovers down the centuries will keep saying them. The cloth God weaves does not wear out. <laughs>